Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this morning, Lord, for this place that you've provided for us where we can gather together. And we're asking that, Lord, as we open your word, that, God, you would cause our ears to be open, to hear what the Spirit would say to the church today, to us. God, your word, it's, it's a lamp to our feet and our light, a light to our path, but we've got we've to take it up. Lord, we've, we've got to be willing to allow, Lord, our, our path to be illumined. God, we have to submit to that truth and that light. And so I pray that by your Holy Spirit, God, you would cause us to bend, Lord, toward you, toward your heart and mind. God, that you would give us a new heart today. We're asking, Father, that you would do that. And Lord, we also want to pause a moment together and pray for our youth ministry and just ask for their hearts the same. God, as they have their final time together in your word before they leave, Lord, as they drive down the mountain, we, we pray that you'd keep them safe, but we pray that they would not be safe from the work that you want to do in them, Lord. That, God, you would, would storm their hearts, God, that they would hear you call to them, follow me, and Jesus, that they would. We pray that you would do more than we could ask or imagine. We're asking that you would fill this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, quickly, I just want to remind us of where we were at last week in chapter 14. You'll remember, of course, we're studying First and Second Samuel, Lessons from the Kingdom for today. We're looking at what God was doing in the nation of Israel in this season of time that moved from them being led and ruled by the judges to the beginning of the kingdom age for Israel. Well, last week, the Philistines, sort of Israel's arch nemesis, they had amassed their troops in Geba, which was near where Saul and Jonathan's armies were. This is the king and his son, the prince. Jonathan com felt compelled to, uh, to strike out and, uh, and challenge them, engaging them in battle. Now, once this happened, Saul kind of woke up and called for reinforcements. And the Philistines, they marshaled their full strength, preparing for a confrontation at this city called Michmash, which we'll talk about again today. It's in the mountains of Bethel, and it's just about 10 miles west of Jericho, a little bit north of the Dead Sea, sort of in central um, Israel. If you look at the back of your Bible um, or a map on your, your phone or your tablet, uh, you can see where we're at. But, but that's, that's when things started to go uh, south, as it were. Saul, he was supposed to wait for Samuel to meet him in Gilgal, that he might offer sacrifices and pray to the Lord. A really good idea to wait on and seek the Lord before a big battle, especially against enemies that, that outnumber you, which the Philistines definitely did. Well, tragically, Saul in his pride, he took up the authority that was not his, and he offered sacrifices on his own. He was proud, he was impatient, and he was self-willed. Now, those are dangerous qualities in, in any child of God, let alone one who's called to be king and to lead and rule Israel. Samuel arrived and quickly announced judgment on Saul. 1 Samuel 13, 14, Now your kingdom shall not, excuse me, but now your kingdom shall not continue, the prophet told Saul. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. That's a lot of commands in verse 14, and that should stand out to us. God, God gave instruction. He commanded a man who was not willing to submit to those commands. And, and as a result, the authority God had given him was taken away. Saul's rule, it didn't immediately end in that moment, though, did it? Saul will continue to be king for several decades from this point, but the longevity of his kingdom immediately came to an end. No one after him and his family would rule in his stead. Now, last week I didn't spend a whole lot of time uh, unpacking this whole concept of how God was going to seek after and find and raise up a, a man after his own heart to be king, but, but mostly, and, and I suppose it's, it's because uh, we're going to understand that better as we get to know David, who himself made many mistakes and sinned greatly, 
but was a man who responded when God confronted and convicted him. Saul ignored the voice of God and insisted on his own way, clinging to the throne and power. But David wept over his sin and held lightly to the throne that God had given him, over which he was steward. He trusted and he feared God, and in this he was a man after God's own heart. And as I said before, we're going to take... Many chapters to consider that and how God wants our own hearts to reflect much of that. Now, chapter 13, it introduced us to another character in this, in this kingdom story that we've begun. A royal character, Jonathan the prince, the son of Saul, who ironically and, and maybe tragically and sadly has many kingly qualities about him. As we look at Jonathan and get to know him, we think, man, he would be a great king, and he probably would have been, but uh, he also would make a great friend to uh, King David. Jonathan wasn't afraid of a fight. He's a man who's drawn to those battles that God wants to see his people take on. Last week, he struck out against the Philistines and initiated a fight that, that uh, hasn't finished yet. And this week, we see the prince again looking for inroads um, to defeat Israel's enemies. And while the armies of Israel and, and the Philistines, they've gathered the anticipated battle of chapter 13 hasn't taken place yet. Um, Well, yet anyway, we're going to see it um, unfold here in chapter 14 today. But we're looking today, we're we're taking this in sort of two parts. We're looking at verses 1 through 23 today because chapter 14 has 52 verses. That's a little too much uh, for a Sunday morning. Our message is titled, Looking for a Fight. And I love how when Gentry and Izzy were leading us in worship, so many of their, their songs were speaking to the battles that God has called us to and him, him fighting for us and, and things along those lines. And that's really what we're talking about this morning. In the best sense possible, Jonathan was looking for a fight. But that fight that God had called him to, we can get distracted by all kinds of things that we think are, are what we're supposed to be expending our energies on and wrestling with. Um, but, but there's a difference between those kinds of fights and the ones that God has called us to. He wanted to believe God for the battle uh, that he'd already promised Israel victory in. Jonathan was a man who trusted God to keep his word. And as such, he saw God do amazing things. We're going to see a little bit of that even uh, today. And if you and I want to see God work in our lives, we're going to have to step out in faith on the promises of Scripture. We're going to have to allow the Lord to take us to a place in our lives where we're willing to make our life decisions based on the promises of his word. It's walking by faith and not by sight. It's it's a willingness to engage in the battles that are maybe uncomfortable, maybe difficult, maybe scary, but where God has clearly said, that's where I want you to go. That's where we grow and that's where we see the victory. It's where we see miracles those areas in our lives maybe where we're struggling to accept that God can do it, or we're having a hard time believing if he is able, those are the places where he's called us to fight. The disciples, confused as to why Jesus was able to cast out a a demon of a young boy, but they couldn't, in asking Jesus why, received this answer. It's found in Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. With God, All things are possible. But the restriction on the the impossible being done in and through our lives, the limiting factor is what? It's our faith. Isn't that interesting? The one thing that got in the way of Jesus performing miracles in his hometown, he couldn't do much there 
because of their lack of faith, their unbelief. It'll limit God's working in your life and mine. Our focus on why a thing can't or won't happen in contrast to simple faith in God's promises. Charles Kettering, a one-time head of research at, at GM, General Motors, wrote that when he wanted a problem solved, he'd place a, a, a table outside of the, the meeting room with a sign propped up that read, leave slide rules behind. We'd, we'd say, you know, graphing calculators or uh, tablets or whatever devices today. He goes on, if I didn't do that, I'd find someone reaching for his slide rule. Then he'd be on his feet saying, Bosh, you can't do it. I think the Lord wants some of us this morning to lay aside our unbelief, to leave our, our slide rules, our calculators, our means of figuring it out and quantifying and comprehending, well, well, how is it possible? And look at all these reasons why it can't. To set that aside, to humble ourselves before his word and trust him over our own understanding and limited faith. So let's begin with verses 1 through 3, faith to fight, verse 1 of chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the Philistines, garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest, and Shiloh was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Well, this is essentially where we left the king in the last chapter. Uh, his son and their armies last week still in the region of Gibeah and Michmash above the Dead Sea and west of Jericho. We described that in our introduction. Jonathan's still looking for that, that opportunity to push these heathen armies out of their land. And today is, is going to be the day. Today he finds that opportunity. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, this young man who assisted him in battle, come let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. Now you're not reading it incorrectly. There's no army following them. There's no special, it's special forces, but it's just two guys. I mean, this is kind of crazy, right? Like, what are you talking about? Two people? Well, you're going to go and have some impact against an entire army? Jonathan is bold. He's a man of faith. And we'll look at that in a moment. But what's interesting here is verse 1 also tells us that he did not tell his father. I wonder, I wonder why. Um, we're not told explicitly why. We're, we're kind of left to speculate and guess. Saul, he's under his pomegranate tree, not too far away, a few miles off uh, in the capital, Gibeah. Maybe he's, maybe he's comfortable, maybe he's relaxing, maybe he's frustrated by Samuel's rebuke uh, at, at Gilgal that, that we read about previously, that, that Samuel told him the kingdom is not going to continue under your leadership. Maybe he's licking his wounds Whatever he's doing, it's not engaging Israel's enemies, which are gathering strength. And with him are these individuals that are described in verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, who was the Lord's priest in Shiloh and was wearing the, the ephod, which the priests would wear. Now, back in chapter 4, a lot of weeks back, Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, do you remember? They were called upon to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with Israel's armies as they fought against the Philistines because things were not going well and that was sort of their, their Hail Mary, um, it, it, like pull out all the stops. We're, we're losing. If we bring the Ark in uh, among us, then surely God will be with us. But remember, they were really treating the Ark like sort of a good luck charm. They, they had allowed distance between them and God, and so they were really grasping for a representation of God, treating the ark like an idol. Well, God was disciplining and judged Israel's armies, and Hophni and Phinehas, uh, of course, they had other gross sin in their lives. God judged them. They both died, and 
upon uh, receiving news that Phineas has, had died because his wife was pregnant and she was actually in labor. Well, as she gave birth, she named their son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Well, this priest, Ahijah, is Ichabod's brother's son. And it may be that all this complicated lineage is mentioned. You're like, okay, why do we need all that? Well, it might be that, that the author here is just sort of bringing in this whole idea of, of Ichabod, the glory has departed, and equating that with Saul's own rule as the glory has departed from, uh, from him as well. Well, we read again in verse 3 that the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So he didn't tell his father, and the people didn't know that he'd gone with his armor bearer up against the Philistines. Maybe somebody would have tried to stop him. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Um, Jonathan seems to prefer not to attract attention to himself. And, and that's in clear contrast with his father who wanted credit for everything. So at some point, probably not too long after the events of the last chapter, we find Jonathan again seeking this opportunity against the Philistines. And interestingly, uh, again we find Saul not looking for that. Saul seems content to sit while his son wants to fight. And it's hard not to, it's hard rather to know exactly what's going on, but, but Jonathan's heart appears to match many of God's promises to Israel. The, the prince's audacious faith and bold military strategies are, are very biblical, actually. God had promised the people that should they obey his word and honor him, he would fight for them. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 7. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword beside you. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Beautiful imagery and language that Jonathan is actually finding to, to be coming to pass before him, or, or will, we'll see in a moment, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in, in, in actual truth. Jonathan is walking in this reality, the reality of God's promises to him. He's stepping right into what God has declared would be true. And why shouldn't he? It's like I mentioned last week. In, in Joshua, God had told Israel in Joshua 1, 3, and, and in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24, that wherever they placed the soles of their feet that God would give them a victory over their enemies. They simply had to walk into and, and own it. They had to fight for it. But, but God had promised he would give them the victory. Is there an equivalent, an equivalent experience and reality for you and I today? Because I think many Christians live in, in varying degrees of defeat unnecessarily. We live under failure. We live outside of the promises of God. The victory that's been won for us at the cross, in, in large part, we're not appropriating the truth that is ours. Now, now, what do we mean by that? What do I mean by that? We either don't know God's word or we don't believe it. What we don't know uh, or aren't actually walking in can't be our experience. Either we don't know God's word or we don't believe it, and what we don't know can't be our actual experience. You may be saved, but you're living like a spiritual pauper. You're outside of God's goodness in too many areas of your Christian life. For some of us, 
that describes where we're at or areas of our lives. We're a little bit like Saul under the pomegranate tree. We're focused on ourselves. We're focused on other things instead of charging out ahead and taking hold of the victories that God's already promised us, like Jonathan. James exhorts us in his letter in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We have to purpose to appropriate, to live out what we know to be true. And what we're inclined, when we're inclined to fear that we're going to fail, that our enemy, that our circumstances are too great, we've got to remember some promises of God's word. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Paul in Romans, after having spoken clearly of salvation, our salvation being, being complete in Christ, he writes in chapter 8, verse 31, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I love that promise. What enemies do we face, are we facing, that we simply roll over and succumb to? Fear, condemnation, shame, guilt, lies that assault our identity in Christ. Unbelief that God is going to care for me, provide for me, work in my life, answer my prayers. We allow hopelessness to have sway over our hearts and we give in to despair, to sin and to defeat. Because th that's what happens, isn't it? When those things overwhelm us and, and we choose not to hear that because that's what's actually happening. We choose not to believe the promises of God and trust him. What comes next is, is we turn away from the Lord to one degree or another. Sin follows and defeat. We need to have the faith of a Jonathan. We need to take up the sword of the Spirit and do battle against our enemy that, that lies to us, robbing us of the hope and promises that are ours in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. I love this truth that's given to us by the Apostle Paul. He reminds us that all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. The promises of God are yes and amen. And that should challenge our lives. That should liberate us to, to look at the Philistine encampments and say, I'm going to forge it. I'm going to step up there. God said he's going to give me the victory. I'm going to walk into it. God wants to work in your life and mine to bring about his best. But are we trusting him? Are we pressing into those promises? Are we waiting on him? Are we depending on his word? Are we obeying what we know? And that's, in, in many ways, that's what this message, finding real application in our lives, this is what it depends on. Do we know the word? Are we applying the word? And if we know the word, that means we're spending time in God's word. That means we're opening the book. It means we're reading it prayerfully. And it means we're seeking by the power of God's Holy Spirit to obey it, to live it out. Now, we come to verses 4 and 5, and, and a quick look at, the whole, at some Holy Land geography. All right, we're going to get just a real quick uh, geography lesson here. One of the beauties of studying the Bible is that these places mentioned are, by and large, discoverable today, um, most of which have been found and identified through archaeology. Now, we read here in verse 4, between the passage by which, uh, passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of uh, one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senna. And you're thinking, you know, well, that sounds weird. Why would they name them? Well, I take family vacations and uh, El Capitan has a name and so does Half Dome and so do all these other noteworthy um, uh, uh, big rocks. I don't know what to say. Anyway... That's what they are. Verse 5, the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other faced 
the other southward opposite Gibeah. And so Michmash is, um, is here facing northward, and the other was southward facing Gibeah. The location, the location of, of this, uh, these, this area has been found between the passes. And we actually have a, a picture here, if we could display that. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. This is just one picture that I found. Uh, God bless our media team. Thank you, Lori, because I originally gave the picture in the wrong format. She said, Pastor Aaron, what am I going to do with you? No, I'm just kidding. And she's a miracle worker, and here it is before us. Um, Bozes, in, in Hebrew, it means slippery or smooth. And I don't know if you can see, but sort of that reddish area on the right, it, it does have a smoothness to it. Um, and enjoys the shade better part of the day. And some have said there's, you know, like moss would grow on there or something. Um, but Senna, though uh, it's, it's, it's understood to mean thorny cliff, both are tall, rocky prominences, and both rise sharply on either side. And today, this place is called uh, Wadi or Riverbed uh, Suwenit. Uh, Su and uh, between these two, Jonathan is an armor bearer, made their way through a rock and a hard place. <laughs> it's not in my notes. Probably should have left it out. But anyway, they headed for the Philistine encampment, and eventually they find a spot along the way here where they scramble up to where the Philistines were. Now, briefly, from time to time, I like to remind us of five primary or, or easily remembered reasons for trusting and believing in the authority and authenticity of the Bible, that it's been preserved and accurately committed to us, that, that what we have in front of us is what God intended. Um, and, and this is one of them, all right? Um, we, we sort of, this five, we kind of add a sixth this year because we put this in part with archaeology because uh, archaeology has revealed cities in the area that are mentioned, notably Jericho, but also Michmash, which is uh, today Mukmash in the West Bank. It's a Philistine city where they built very near to the ancient ruins of Michmash. But uh, given those locations and then the very specific descriptions of the rocks, this matches and this is the location. And, and I love that. And archaeology slash geography and, um, and geology, they, they agree with and they confirm scripture, along with uh, manuscript evidence, the abundant ancient sources that we have, history, secular history that agrees with the Bible, uh, honesty, it tells the truth, sometimes uncomfortably so. Uh, can I get an amen from the ladies that are studying Genesis right now on Mondays and Fridays? I know, and fulfilled prophecy that proves uh, divine origin of this message, the Bible, uh, omniscient authorship that's able to look ahead and see things before they happen. But this is part of it because we know some of you who have studied the cults that some of their holy books so-called, they contain uh, places and descriptions of things that happen that are just clearly fanciful. And, and with the Bible, it's not so. When he says a thing, when it says a thing was there and existed, uh, generally speaking, you can go and find it. You can find the remains of the cities. You can find the locations. And I, I just think that's um, helpful to be reminded of. Now, uh, moving along, we'll look at verses 6 through 10. Our next point, many or few. Verse 6, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will save, excuse me, that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say thus to us, We will come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. These are the kind of people you want to be around in your, in your Christian life and experience. That's an exciting kind of people, Jonathan's and his armor bearer. Jonathan's, his faith was huge. Uh, men and women like this, like this armor bearer who had the faith to, to believe, to see and the willingness to go to support, to say, I see what you see, and I'm in. 
The Lord can do this. Let's believe him for it. Let's, let's do it. Let's go for it. It's a powerful combination. Would that we would be these kinds of men and women, the ones that are willing to take steps of faith and the ones that are willing to support and encourage and say, I'm with you. Let's do it. Verse 6, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Basically, Jonathan says, hey, let's, let's see what God wants to do. And he certainly isn't limited. If he wants to wipe them out just with us, he can do that. Joshua, again, at the end of his life, he, he recalled God's faithfulness to Israel and he declared to the people, the land had been settled. Joshua is going to pass from the national scene soon. And in Joshua 23.10, he exhorts the people of Israel and he says, one man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you, recording, remembering those promises we read earlier from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Jonathan has that same faith and passion. He, he had a radical and simple faith in his God, and because of that, he would see God do great things. The author of Hebrews writes about this in chapter 11, verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You're, you're discouraged. You feel like I've been trying. I've been praying. I've been hanging on to the promises of God, but the answer hasn't come yet. Diligently seeking him. He's a rewarder. When Jesus gave the, the, the teaching on prayer and he said, ask and seek and knock, some of you know that, that the intention there, what's implied is that we would keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. In, in, in the fervent increase in our prayers and our desperation in God, so too is increased our devotion and our intimacy with the Lord, which is ultimately what he wants, that we would know him better, that we would walk more closely with him. And in that place, he promises to answer prayer. God's looking for that kind of radical faith today. But, but if I may... I'd like to challenge us that this was, it was faith, the faith that Jonathan had. It was faith for a fight. We, we've romanticized, I think, some of us about, about how and what these kinds of verses, how, how they're applied in our lives. Like, I'll just, you know, yes and amen, it's mine, and I don't have to actually do anything about it. But, but we're to stand on them. When our marriage is struggling, when things are falling apart, we have to believe to declare and fight. God, you can save this relationship, and I will obey you and fight and do the hard things that require obedience and faith. Do you know in that scenario what it is to fight like Jonathan? It's to stay. It's to not give up. It's to keep loving when you're not able to anymore. You know what it is when you're, when you're battling fear and anxiety? It's to choose to trust God's word over what you feel. When you're overwhelmed by your circumstances, it's to say, my God is greater. And he who spoke the world into existence, who loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me, what good thing is he going to withhold from me? The answer, nothing. I'm going to trust him. That's where the fight is. Lord, I'll trust and believe that you are able, able to work in my kids' lives, that family member, to provide. I'm not going to give up. Believe in God for the things that have not yet happened, that you've waited for through the health struggle, the loneliness, the depression. God is able. Trust him. Walk in obedience to his word. Verse 6, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. God doesn't need a huge army to defeat the Philistines. He just needs one 
One man or woman willing to trust him, to believe his promises, to fight. Jonathan is his, his armor bearer, wanted to be those men. God's calling you and I to stand in the gap for our kids, our marriages, for God's people, our friends, for the lost. Don't give up. When Jonathan, Jonathan rather than develops a strategy, verse 9 as we read, but if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up. It's funny, that feels like that would be the harder thing. Like maybe if they're coming down, it would be, you know, easier. I don't know. But, but here they're going to have to climb up and come into the encampment. But he said, for the Lord has delivered them into our hands. If that happens, then this will be a sign to us. This really isn't a fleece. We kind of think of it in terms of Gideon in the book of Judges. But in that case, God had already clearly told Gideon to go and to fight the Midianites and that he would give them the victory. This is more of a test to see if Jonathan is supposed to do this at all. He believes he is, but he wants to make sure. And that's wise. Because in talking about this kind of faith and stepping out and taking hold of the promises of God, um, it's good to check because even radical faith can be wrong. Scripture tells us that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors and even more importantly, and even more so, in waiting on the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, I think it gives us a great balance of this concept. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Don't stand in the way of the Holy Spirit and, and don't shun God working in that kind of miraculous prophetic way. But verse 21, test all things. Hold fast what is good. Sometimes we have to test it and go, oh, wait a minute. Is that from the Lord? Let me, let me just check and see. I always tell people, if somebody comes up to you, you know, and has some prophetic, you know, word from God, just be like, okay, I'm going to check with him because he's got my number, and, and he can let me know that too, you know. I'm not going to pack up and move wherever or, you know, quit my job or do whatever thing that, you know, may or not be from the Lord just because somebody says it was. I'm going to wait on him, and I'm going to let him confirm that to me. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. It's not all going to be good. It's not all going to be uh, actually from the Lord. And Jonathan, he's putting out sort of a test here. God, is this you? Are you in it? So let's understand what happened as we finish up this morning's chapter, verses 11 through 23, understanding and catching up. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, and we will show you something. We'll, we'll show you a thing or two. Come on up, Jonathan, if you want to fight. And Jonathan said to his armor, all right, there we go. Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. The Philistines are mocking, of course. We read those verses previously from the last chapter. The children of Israel, they've, they've fled across the Jordan. They're in holes, in thickets, in caves. They're scared to death. And, and they see Jonathan coming, and they're like, oh, look, one came out of, here's a little, you know, Israeli hobbit coming after us, you know, out of his little hole in the ground. Come on up, sure, whatever. And uh, bingo, Jonathan's like, there's our confirmation. Let's go fight. And up the cliff he goes. Verse 13. That's three messages in a row with Lord of the Rings references in case you're keeping track. I'll take a break next week. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp and the field and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Everybody's trembling. The people are trembling. Even the earth is trembling. Jonathan crests this, this hill, this cliff, and immediately the Philistines, they're falling in front of him. And the armor bearer's coming up, just cleaning, cleaning up things uh, after him, uh, fighting and, and taking out those still living. Verse 15, it's almost, it's almost funny how it reads with all this trembling, the people trembling uh, in the field, and, and all the people are trembling, and the raiders, and then there's this earthquake. God brings, supernaturally causes the earth to shake. Definitely a great trembling, and all of this so intimidated 
the people, the Philistine army, that they just became confounded, confused, and like other examples in the Old Testament, they turned on each other and were fighting one another in this mess that God had created, this supernatural victory that he was giving by these two men willing to believe and act in faith. Now, verses 16 through 23. Now, the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, so not far from where the battle's taking place, a watchman sees the Philistines scattering and runs and tells Saul. And Saul said to the people, call roll and see who is gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. They'd, of course, remember, snuck out, and Saul discovers they're missing. Saul should be joining the battle, but instead he wanted to find out who's in charge. Because he's not. He isn't the leader that God had called him to be. Verse 18. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God Here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So the priest is there. Saul's saying, well, let's pray before we go to battle. I read in there that he's kind of stalling. I I don't think this is legitimate, but maybe it is. We really don't know, but partly... Saul is exposed here because it's kind of like you're having a prayer meeting and and then there's a commotion outside, like maybe you're having a, a, whatever it is, and you tell them, hey, stop praying so I can hear what's going on over here. That's kind of what Saul's doing. Pray so we know what to do. Hey, quit praying because I need to figure out what I'm supposed to, it's mixed messages here. He, He tells him, withdraw your hands, stop seeking the Lord. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Philistines who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim When they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Crazy, crazy battle. In verse 20, we read that Saul, he he finds that the Philistines are completely confused and have attacked each other. Uh, While this has happened, the Jews that had previously run away, and even some that had defected to the Philistines, believe it or not, they turned against Israel. The Philistines, and now they were all fighting them together, and God was giving them a victory, gave them a powerful victory over their enemies. The Philistines fleeing in the battle, moving on to another front. Are you and I this morning looking for a fight? Looking for the fight like what we've read about this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 14, the fight of faith that God is calling you to. I mean in the way that Jonathan was. Are we students of the word such that we might know the audacious uh, audacious promises of God and stand on them, claiming and walking in them? Do we believe for the lost to be saved, for our marriages to be healed? relationships mended for what seems impossible to be done for the glory of God. Are we looking for the fight that God has called us to? The fight that maybe is not glamorous. The fight that's hard. The fight that's day in and day out, but requires faith. Requires dependence on God's Holy Spirit and on His truth. Do we really believe G. Campbell Morgan tells the story of the great English actor William McCready. An eminent preacher once said to this actor of so many generations ago, this preacher asked the famous actor, I wish you would explain to me something. Well, what is it, he replied. I don't know what I can explain uh, to a preacher, but the preacher went on and said, what is the reason for a difference between you and I? You are appearing before crowds night after night with fiction, and the crowds come wherever you go. 
And I am preaching the essential and untangible, unchangeable truth, and I'm not getting any crowd at all. McCready, the, the actor, answered, this is quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. Do we believe the promises of God? Or through our lives are we living out a fiction? Because it's really not true for us. Some of us live outside of God's best. Some of us are not seeing God work because in reality, at the end of the day, the promise is a lack of faith. And it's why we keep struggling and stumbling and walking away from the battle because we really don't believe that God is able. And he wants us today to surrender that unbelief and trust him and stand on those promises and, and not just in one moment of faith, but to say to God, tomorrow I will trust you and Tuesday afternoon and I will stand on your promises Wednesday night and Thursday morning and, and Saturday night. Where are the Philistine fortifications that we're willing to fight, that we're called to fight in our lives? The hard work that we need to resolve to do. Commitment to essential disciplines that are easily dismissed as drudgeries but are necessary for maturity and maybe part of the battle being won. We need to fight Maybe the worship team can join me as we prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning. You can join me in prayer here for a moment. Father, as we do make that shift in our hearts and, and consider communion, Lord, we want to pause here for a moment because some of us, Lord, after this message, God, if we're honest with you and with ourselves, we've given up on the fight. Some of us, we're, we're phoning it in. We're play-acting. Our lives have become a fiction, God, but you, you want to birth faith there. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to say yes to you. Help us, Lord, to obey where we have disobeyed. Help us to depend on your strength, God, where we have been leaning on our own understanding. God, help us to do the hard work of fighting. God, to be students of your word that we might know your promises and stand on them. And I just want to take a brief moment this morning. If that's you and you need to surrender, you need to say yes to the Lord. He's called you to fight. You need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. You need to repent of sitting around letting others fight. And he's called you to the battle. If that's you, would you just raise your hand really quick? I just want to pray for you. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Anyone else this morning? I just want to surrender in a fresh way to the Lord. God, I need you. I need your help, your power. Yes, yes, yes. Lord, we want to surrender to you. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. God, where we lack faith, we say, help our unbelief. God, we want to stand on the promises of your word, Lord, and, and by those promises that that mustard seed faith would be born in us. God, we want to trust you for the battle. Make us strong. Be strong in our weakness. In Jesus' name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On your seats, hopefully, when you sat down this morning, you found one of these cups it may have fallen out of your chair and could be on the ground behind you or underneath. But if you peel off the first clear film on the top, there's a little wafer. 
And if you're a believer in Jesus, I invite you to join us as we partake of communion. But the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' very real experience among us, that God so loved us that he sent his son, that, that our creator's salvation was embodied, incarnated in Jesus Christ. And that he was broken, he was pierced for us. Jesus, he broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples. And you can break the bread in your hand, remembering Jesus. And so, Lord, we take the bread and we pray that you would bless it. Jesus, as we remember that you are the bread of life, that you came to give us life, that you are our sustenance, you are our healer, you are our savior. Thank you for standing in the gap for us. Thank you for laying your life down in our place. We pray that you would bless the bread now as we take it. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The juice, the wine, it reminds us, again in a physical way, so that we can touch it and taste it, that Jesus, he came, he became our salvation, forgiveness, life, even as, as his blood was poured out at the cross. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would bless this cup, this new covenant in your blood. Thank you, Jesus, that this blood speaks of better things that this cup is forgiveness, this cup is freedom, freedom from the past. Thank you, Jesus, that, that in your blood we forget those things that are behind and we press forward to what lies ahead. We ask that you would bless this cup now as we take it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the cup. Jesus, we thank you for this meal that you've given us, this reminder of your faithfulness, and I pray that you would equip us, that you would make us men and women who stand on your promises, stand in the work, Jesus, that you have done, that as the redeemed, we would go forward into your calling on our lives, that we would fight those battles that you've called us to, in faith, trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.